you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Jeshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and the Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, to Afek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Jebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mizrapoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Well, friends, so good uh, to be with you. Thank you, Nick, for your warm welcome. Thank you for the invitation to come and, and speak this morning. It's great to be here to open the Bible together. I hope that your time in Joshua here at City on Hill East has been just as encouraging as it has been for us as we've seen God so powerfully at work for his people. Now, just to, to get our bearings, uh, if you haven't been with us, the book splits kind of neatly into two halves. We got Joshua 1 to 12, which is all the, the battle stories, the conquest, it's cut and thrust, it's drama, it's excitement. We've been in that for the last seven or so weeks. And then we get chapters 13 to 24, the second half of the book. And this is where the tribes of Israel settle in the land. And, and to be honest, as I read it, it looks like a land contract. It's a little less cut and thrust and drama and excitement. And we're only going to spend two weeks in this back end of the book this week and next week. So we've read from chapter 13, but we've actually got to cover 13 to 22 this morning. So we've got a lot of ground to get through, uh, but God is good. The Apostle Paul says that uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, and so we're going to find treasure as we do every week as we open up God's Word. We're going to have treasure in these chapters today. Now, because we have so much ground to cover, we're not going to go through verse by verse. You'll be pleased to know you will get home for lunchtime today. Uh, we are going to movie montage it. We're going to movie montage our way through this section. You guys know how this works, right? The, the music plays, scenes change quick so that weeks and months and even years can pass uh, while the director shows us the, the kind of journey that the characters are on and moves the, the story along, but still shows us some key images and themes in the story along the way. That's what we're going to use this morning. And when I think movie montage, there's only one person that comes to mind, and we've got this guy to inspire us. Has anyone seen this movie or any of the six movies? Rocky, Balboa, music and running have never gone so well together. Uh, I told my friend I was going to use this. He said, this is a bit dated. Well, I said, that's fair. Uh, but if you are too young to know who Rocky Balboa is, then I say to you, my friend, you are young enough to do a movie marathon. You've got time in your hands, and you will have one 
two, three, six movies to enjoy if you do your thank me letter. Uh, so we're going to embrace the movie montage to get through chapters 13 to 22. And we're going to slow down for four kind of key themes in this part of the story, four themes that thread through these chapters. And as always, we're going to see the beauty and the truth and the relevance of God's Word as we open it up together. So, you ready? Here's our first big theme. In the montage, God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. Uh, We read from chapter 13, and it is a pause in the action so that God and Joshua can have a conversation. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, come with me and have a look at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can get it on your phone like my wife was doing in that photograph. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 1. We read, now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Rub it in, Lord. Uh, And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. And then God lists a series of places in the land. Uh, They've got lots to look back on together, God and Joshua. They can look back at conquests through the land so far. But here, God lifts Joshua's eyes to see that there is more work to do. There is yet more land to possess. In Ballarat, we live on a, in a newish suburb, kind of on the edge of town. And so if you go a, a kilometer or two away from our house, you hit the, the rolling plains of Western Victoria. And it looks and feels a lot like rich farmland. But if you look closer, you can see that it isn't farmland anymore, swathes of it are earmarked for housing estates after housing estates. It's the same down here in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, Developers now own this land. New road systems are being drawn on with spray paint. You can see plots being marked out with string. Services are being dug in. Uh, People haven't moved in yet, but there's no doubt what's coming. There's no doubt who owns the land and what is coming for this land, and so it is here. The land belongs to God. And it's marked out for the people to move into. Here's what God says to Joshua in verse 6. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, the remaining inhabitants of the land. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. God's going to keep doing his thing. He'll drive out the peoples of his land as he has been doing. And he, he tells Joshua, your thing, your job is to allot the land. Start marking out those suburbs and those plots so the people can move in. And through to chapter 21, that's exactly what happens. God tells him where each tribe and each clan and each family is going in really specific detail. I think I've got a map so we can get a sense of of the picture of the land through these chapters. If you can see the detail, each color representing a different tribe. Boundaries are drawn up and over mountains. They cross springs. They bend around towns and villages. And look, for my unschooled eyes, it does look like a land contract. It's kind of unintelligible. But for an Israelite who's fought for this land... For a a mother who's lost her son in battle for this land? For a daughter whose father died before he could enter this land? This means everything. This is their God. This is our God keeping his promises. And these are long-term 
promises. It's so important we, we get our heads around this and trace the story from where it comes because St. Kilda's wait for a premiership, it is nothing compared to these Israelites waiting for this land. It is core to the promises that God makes to Abram. He's the, the founding father of the nation. Here's God to Abram in Genesis 15, a long time before. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. We should recognize some of those names because they are in the land that Israel has conquered. God didn't forget his words. It's a, a promise that bubbles through the story with Isaac and Jacob and then Moses and here now to Joshua. You might remember what God said to Joshua in verse, in chapter one. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. The whole book is actually about them taking this land and God fulfilling his ancient promise. And let's be clear, he's the one who's giving them this land. Do you know how many times the, the land is described as their inheritance? In these chapters, 13 to 22, you probably don't. It's 85 times. Over and over we're told it's their inheritance. It's God's gift to them. It's his to give to his people. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Every tribe gets their share, big or small. Every clan within those tribes gets their share. Every family within those clans gets their share. Every individual knows their spot where they can call home. God keeps his promises, and that's why we get such detail here. It's the author reveling in the victory that God has won and, and in his provision for his people and the proof that he keeps his promises to every man, woman, and child. It's amazing. What God says he'll do, he does, and, and he still is doing it. He can still be trusted. He won't let us die. He is reliable. And look, there's so much hope here, especially if we're in a season where we're, we're not sure what God is doing, or maybe we're doubting Him. Maybe we've been praying for something for a while, and gosh, it feels like God is not listening. But friend, if God is committed to doing the thing you are praying for in His Word, if He says He will do that thing, then keep praying. He is listening. He will answer it in his time, in the way that he knows best. God keeps his promises. There's one more thing I want us to see uh, on this promise, and it's such good news. God has a purpose for his people as he gives them this land. Uh, come with me all the way to chapter 22. We're going to read verse 4. It'll be on the screen. And now... We read, the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. God gives them this land so they can rest. No more fleeing slavery, no more wandering in the wilderness. No, go to your tents, go to your land and rest. Go and enjoy 
the rest. The war is won. It's time for that deep work finished, satisfied kind of rest. And who of us doesn't want a rest? I don't have the numbers to back this up, but I have a theory particularly relevant for life in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. What do you think is the most common answer to the question, how are you? How are you doing? What do you reckon? You might say, yeah, yeah, I'm good, but I'm busy. Anyone answer that question with busy today already? We all say it, don't we? We're all busy. Work is busy. School is busy. Uni is busy. Home life is busy. Holidays with the kids are great, but they're, they're busy. We're busy. The kids are busy themselves. It seems like being busy is kind of like being valuable or being important or being someone. We have to be busy. And therefore, we all crave an end to that busyness. We yearn for a break. We might even, and I say this quietly, we might even look back at lockdown and yearn for that time again because everything stopped, a lot stopped, and we weren't busy. We need a rest. We long for the simple life. And you know, God promises his people a rest from our busyness. For us today, the promise is not found in a place, but in a person. Listen to these life-giving words from Jesus in Matthew's gospel. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus invites us to come to him. Do we, do we labor? Are we on this hamster wheel of endless work? Are we we heavy laden, we're kind of carrying the burdens of our, our family and our friends and our jobs on our, our shoulders. And, and if you stepped out, well, the whole thing would collapse. Come to Jesus and we will find rest for our souls. Look, a, a night on the couch watching TV or a, a good long holiday, they're great circuit breakers, aren't they? A wonderful little moments of physical rest, but Jesus promises deeper, more permanent rest, rest for our souls. This is rest that stills that kind of internal angst or fear that's driving me to have to be in control of everything all the time. Jesus offers rest. It's soul rest that stills this kind of gnawing insecurity within me that I'm never enough for the people around us. Never mind for God. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm never funny enough. Jesus says there's rest. Soul rest is that which settles this deep uncertainty about who I am. We're told over and over to to look inside ourselves. Find the answer within ourselves. Look inside and we'll unlock this unlimited potential. But I've looked and I can't find those things, those answers for meaning and purpose and direction. But Jesus promises rest because he is in control of our future. We don't have to be. Our salvation is secure by the work he has finished on the cross. He invites us into a perfect relationship with our heavenly father who takes us as we are. We don't need to measure up to a standard in order to be accepted. No, God invites us to come to him. 
We are enough as we are. And Jesus gets to work in us by His Spirit, shaping us from the inside out to be more like Him, giving us a purpose in our life to become more like Jesus. He's got this. And He's got a pretty good track record of keeping His promises. That's why we walk through the Old Testament. Jesus invites us to come not to a person, but to a, not to a place, but a person to Him. He promises rest for our souls. That's the first part of our Rocky montage. Through these chapters, God keeps His promises. Second big theme I want us to, to slow down for, His people play their part. Now, I reckon there'll be a few of us here who have built our own homes. Uh, give us a nod if you've built your own home. I'm hoping there's some of us who've have, but I, well, I wonder how many of us are actually builders? My guess is the number would be a little smaller, but we don't have to be a builder to say that we've built our own home, do we, right? We can buy the land and we can kind of choose the, the design of the house and then we choose the doorknob so we can say we built the house, right? And I'm not knocking that. We should be proud of that hard work. I say it because it's a bit like God and the Israelites. He has won the victory for His people. He's given them this land. He's like the builder who built the house, but they play their part. They have to choose the doorknobs. They've got to actually move in. God's been the one who's leading His people on this charge, but He invites them to play their part. If you think back to the story of Jericho, if you can remember that story, that kind of shows us this really helpfully. God sets them up for the victory, right? He tells them what they should do. They have to walk around six times quietly and then shout as loud as they can on the seventh lap and the walls will crash down and they'll go in and conquer the city. He, he tells them exactly what to do, but they actually have to do it. They're the ones that have to do the laps. It's faith in action. And so it is here. God has marked out the land for them. He's apportioned each tribe and clan and family, their land, they now have to go in and take it, and in some cases, they have to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And so through these chapters, the action settles on a few key individuals that show us that their faith in action, them claiming these promises from God. Joshua, Right at the end, he's the last person to get his inheritance. We're told he does the work to rebuild and settle in the city he asks for, Timnath Sarah, in chapter 19. The daughters of Zelophehad, anyone heard of them? Neither would I, they're from the tribe of Manasseh. That's good. Uh, they're singled out in chapter 17. They claim a promise from God that they women would get an inheritance from him just like their brothers. They're celebrated for their faith in claiming his promises. And then there's Caleb. Caleb is a wonderful model of faithful obedience right into his old age. He's singled out for his commitment to driving out the Canaanites from the land he gets a portion, just as the Lord commanded. Here's how he's remembered in chapter 14, verse 14. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. They're all celebrated because they, they play their part. 
in moving in and driving out the enemies that are there taking hold of God's promises. It's crazy, right? This is the almighty God who could literally do anything. And he invites his people to actually play their part in achieving his purposes for this world. It it brings to mind Paul's challenge to the Philippian church in, in Philippians 2 to obey, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, says Paul, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, the Christian life is not a tools down life. Jesus invites us to rest and have rest for our souls because he has achieved the victory on the cross. There can be no doubt that the work of our salvation is complete and finished in Jesus. It's a once and for all sacrifice that we don't have to keep making, but we don't now put our feet up until he comes back. No, if we're a Christian, we take our salvation life seriously. We work on cultivating a a deeper and deeper and deeper relationship with Jesus, the one who saves us. We play our part. And Jesus tells us what playing our part would look like. Do you remember what we read from Matthew 11? We could have this back on the screen. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We play our part not by way of claiming land, but learning the way of Jesus. He invites us to spend our lives learning, striving, working on becoming more like Him. And He is also doing the same thing in us by His Spirit, conforming us more and more to His image. And look, how can we become more like him if we don't spend more time with him? You might be thinking, here comes another preacher hammering me for not having a quiet time, but, but Jesus doesn't come at us with a hammer. No, he, he doesn't have a harsh rebuke. No, look what he says. He's gentle and lowly. He's accessible. He's open. He's inviting us to come and spend more time with him. He longs for us to do that. It should be our life's goal. So when was the last time we we opened up the Bible, not to tick the quiet time box, but to actually enjoy spending time with Him? When was the last time we curled up on the couch with a coffee and and we just opened a gospel to read and and be with Jesus? It's restful time for us. And look, to be honest, they, they come few and far between for me, these moments, but Suja and I, we've, we've decided that we need to work on this. We can't trust spontaneity just to kind of make this happen and hope that we will feel right in the moment. No, we have a, a date in the diary. Just one evening a week, the kids have gone to bed. We'll do this together. We, we're in separate chairs, comfy chairs. We're reading separate things. I'm in Exodus. She's in Acts at the minute. But we'll sit quietly with some soft music on for 20, 30 minutes and then simply ask each other, well, what do you think the Lord was saying to you in that? And then we pray for each other in light of what we're reading. It's not rocket science. We haven't cracked the code for the quiet time. But I share this with you as as a way of offering it to you, as something worth trying. We're working at making this happen, working at learning this life with Jesus. God calls us to play our part. What part are you playing? 
All right. We're back on the road. We're running with Rocky. We've got two themes down. We've a third one that I want to highlight, and it is this. Problems are planted here for the future. Our old house in Ivanhoe had a, a massive tree on the boundary line just over in our neighbor's house. And every year around this time, it would drop its leaves and they'd clog the gutters and the place would flood and its roots were uh, affecting the house and and damaging the pipes underground. Now, it turns out this is a a desert ash, our neighbor tells us, and it was a weed. When he moved in 40 or 50 years ago, it was a tiny little sapling. And now it's 20 or 30 meters tall. If you leave weeds unchecked, they will cause damage in the future. Trust me, I've living proof. And for God's people, as they enter the land, there are still some weeds that they need to deal with. There are still problems that they need to clear. And some of them deal with those problems. Some of them obey God's word to to clear out people from the land, just as God has commanded them. But not everyone does. We hear this phrase six times in different places, but they did not drive out the people of the land. Some of the Israelites were complacent. Uh, I'll read from chapter 15. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. They had to go. It's just too hard, so they, they gave up, and, and they were complacent. They just lived with their enemies. Some of them compromised. Here's the tribe of Ephraim in chapter 16. We read, however, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Let it go. It was hard. They didn't get rid of everyone, so look, we'll compromise. We'll, we'll have them do forced labor instead. Now, it's really important that we remember, and you've seen this, I know, through this series. God wants them to drive out the inhabitants, not because they are kind of neutral, innocent victims of, of colonial expansion here. That is not what's going on. These are people worshiping other gods and living with cruelty. Hello? Cruelty <laughs> in their lives and living with injustice. I'll just keep going, and uh, I'm sure these will come back on. (laughs) God doesn't want those things seeping into the life of His people. He doesn't want sin driving a wedge between Him and His people. He doesn't want those little seedlings of sin causing great big problems later on. There we go. And look, for a while, it's fine, right? For a while, they live side by side and all is well. We don't really get much reports of trouble. But if you keep reading after Joshua, the next book is Judges, and then you keep reading into the Old Testament, we see the problems that this causes, the temptation to turn away from God and turn their backs on Him to worship other things. It just gets too big. They can't resist. The roots of sin go deeper and deeper, they, they allow these weeds to grow. And in the future, they have big problems, so much so that God eventually kicks them out of this land that He has long promised them to have. City on a Hill, here's the rub for us. If we get complacent with sin, if we keep compromising with sin, we might not see the difference for a while, but we are planting problems for our future selves. 
Here's what I mean, right? To take this as an example, if I love a bit of juicy gossip, it's kind of one of those, I don't know, innocent sort of sins. Is it even a sin? We're not really even sure. It seems harmless. It's just hearing something true and then passing it on. I can rationalize to myself. It's kind of not really my fault. They, that person, whoever they are, shouldn't have done whatever that thing is. It's, it's kind of their fault, not mine. Well, look, if I cultivate that habit by never dealing with it and never even acknowledging that it is sinful, where does it end up in a year or two or ten years? Will people trust me? Probably not. Will my relationships be harmed? Some of them will probably be ended. What sort of friendships will I have? Will I have friends or will I just be an acquaintance for people because they can't trust that what they say to me, I'll not pass on to other people. And what sort of person does it leave me? Am I a person of integrity? Am I a person of character that other people lean on? No, I don't think I will be. Friends, Jesus doesn't mess around with sin. He calls for action, not ignorance. Here's what he says with a bit of Jewish hyperbole. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. These are strong words. If we get complacent with sin, if we keep making compromises to live with sin, we are planting problems for our future selves. So here's a a challenge for this next week. What is one sin you can say no to? It might just be something really small. No to a, a second look. No to passing on that juicy information you hear. No to a a drink too far. Cultivating that habit of saying no to sin, that's the start of putting it to death in our lives. What can you say no to this week? Little seeds of sin now will go to be great big weeds if we leave them be. Still tracking with me? We've done three themes in our montage, racing through these passages. God keeps His promises. His people play their part. They plant problems for the future. And there's one more, really. This is the the direction of the whole montage, the whole book, really. And it is this, to God be the glory. We get a set of verses in Joshua 21, and some people call this the the theological heart of the book. Uh, Here's where we're going to finish. Turn with me to Joshua 21 verses 43 to 45. These are wonderful verses. So we read, thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands." Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. These are the the crescendo verses for this book. In fact, for those promises that go all the way back to Genesis 12 and God's relationship with Abraham for centuries, it is a complete and total victory for God. Did you see all the alls? All the land is given. They have rest on every side. Not one of all their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all of them into their hands. All His good promises are kept. All came to pass. Yes, 
The people of God must play their part, and they will have to keep doing that, but, but God has come through for them. He's given them what he promised. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. To him be all glory, because he keeps his word, and he still does today. He's the same God, the same character. The, the New Testament says this, that all his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. I don't know where you're at with Jesus today. Maybe you're still weighing him up. Maybe you're wondering, is he really worth following? You're here at church. Maybe you've been for a few weeks and you're kind of sussing it out. Well, friend, let me remind you that his invitation is one that we can't find anywhere else, to come and find rest for our souls. Maybe you're so busy in life and life feels a bit like a movie montage. You're just kind of racing through it. Maybe it's so busy that Jesus is getting squeezed out of your life. Well, friend, his promise to you today is come, come back. I am gentle and lowly. Let's start over. Let's work on your life together again. There's no recrimination. His arms are open and he wants you to come back to him. Maybe you're wrapped up in a pattern of sin so deep and there's a voice in your head saying that you can't come back from this, right? You've gone too far. This time, Jesus won't want anything to do with you now, but his promise is come and rest. He will take our guilt and shame. He promises complete and total forgiveness of our sin. And he invites you to work on that sin together with him by his spirit in our lives. City on Hill, our lives go up and down. In our love for God, we, we wax and we wane in our obedience and our trust in his word and his promises. We kind of grow cold and sometimes we're hot, but God never wavers in his faithfulness to us. All glory be to God. Jesus is always over everything. We're going to stand together. I'll invite you to stand now. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to sing praise. We'll sing of his glory together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we see so clearly in the book of Joshua that you are a God who can be relied upon. You are a God we can trust. You are faithful to your promises. And so, Lord, I pray for any of us today questioning that, wondering about that, doubting you, that you would affirm for us afresh that you are a good and trustworthy, promise-keeping God. For those of us not sure where we stand with you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would remind us and show us, even this morning, Lord, of just how wonderful this life of rest for our souls is with you. Invite us to come and spend life learning from you, Lord Jesus. And God, I pray for each of us that as our lives go up and down and we grow hot and cold, that we would be reminded today that just how faithful you are. You have not gone away. You are still there, Lord God. You are with us always. And would that be a great encouragement? Oh, glory be to you, Lord God. Jesus, you are over everything. We praise you and thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Dot au.